0: Hey, I'm Steph Ferrar,
1: And I'm Sam Ferrar,
0: And this is a Job Fair Podcast.
1: A Job Cast.
0: Where you shop for work. <laughs> it's workshopping. Thank go. you for being here. Yeah. This week on workshopping, we have Megan Helsell.
1: Oh, good is... intro right there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, ne- we never do intros. You
0: know, I practiced that yeah. on the 405 when I was in traffic. <laughs>
1: Yeah, thanks for coming.
0: I know. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. It's just nice to be in your presence. Yeah. I know. It's been so long.
1: Oh, man, it's crazy. So, yeah, our podcast has two questions that we've defined, and then everything else is up, up in the air, So as we say. So the first question is, what did you want to be when you were a kid?
2: So I wanted to be both an actor and a lawyer, mm-hmm. and so my brilliant um, idea was that I would be on LA Law because that was like the TV show <sighs> makes of the sense. moment. Yeah, <laughs> makes perfect sense. And so that was always my great aspiration, was to be on L.A. Law.
1: Amazing. That <laughs> was
0: the greatest law show.
2: Yeah, and they were so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and at that same time, my sister's big aspiration was to be the um, – Meat cutter at the deli. She just wanted to work that meat
0: shaving machine. Okay, I've never
1: heard that. That's amazing. It is a cool machine though. I get it. I
0: mean totally. Yeah. How much how old is your sister? She's like four years older than older me than you. Yeah. Meat cutter and an attorney. It's okay. She got her PhD. She's fine.
1: So that's not far off from where you at least where you started. Yeah. You know, in the direction you headed. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a lot about interlocking because I think it's really cool, but is there is there anything we need to talk about before we get there?
0: Well, let's back up. Where are you from? So I grew up in a
2: college town in Illinois where my parents were both professors. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, somewhat small and rural, but because the university, there was just a lot to, to do there. And my mom in particular was and has always been a great lover of the arts, mm-hmm. um, You know, was always really into theater, seeing theater, also just really into fine art and, you know, did ceramics herself and took piano. And so she kind of gave me, um, you know, just this sort of like polyamorous love of all arts. And because of the university, we had access to these great teachers that were teaching at the college level and all kinds of great art centers. And so... You know, I started really young, like, doing theater classes and workshops, right. even in kindergarten. And taking piano and, like, basket weaving and ceramics and yep. all but you s- still do all of, I feel like. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and painting and then mm-hmm. Suzuki violin and mm-hmm. later saxophone because of Lisa Simpson. <laughs> That's
3: amazing.
2: <laughs> um, and so... She just kind of had me in everything and like chased down anything I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I was seven when she um, brought up the idea of auditioning. She had read about auditions for this like equity summer stock theater that was not too far, like 45 minutes from our house. And it got all these Broadway actors to come in and do Broadway shows, Mm -hmm. and people bought like season tickets, but it was small. And so I went and auditioned. And got apart. You're seven. Yeah, I was yeah. seven. And it was gypsy, mm. which is oh. very racy.
1: I was in gypsy in high school as well. Were oh, yeah. yeah. nice. you? that was a cow's butt. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good role. Yeah.
2: Um and so I spent that summer before second grade like doing doing that. And it was magical. Yeah. It was like everyone was so glamorous and it was so dangerous. And there was like, people were using the F word backstage and they were (laughs) nude and they were like lover's quarrels. And it was just so eye-opening. And I loved being on stage and I loved doing that. Mm -hmm. But we also, um, there's the three strippers in that song. And so myself and two of the other girls that were like Baby Rose and another girl, decided to learn that whole part and we even made like little g-strings out of like plastic necklaces that we put over our shorts and at a like sort of cast rap which i remember was at a christmas themed bar i don't know how they let small children (laughs) into but we decided to perform for the whole you know cast basically the stripper song and they were just dying like it was so inappropriate and wrong and just and we were even doing like the you know the thrusts and Uh the whole thing (laughs) um and and i was at seven seven. and i was just like these are my
3: people Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) and so that sort of started my like love of theater overall i mean i still was doing all the other stuff and was what was your mom a professor of so Spoiler alert, but she's a professor of public relations. For real? Yeah, uh, speech yeah. comm, PR. And your dad? And my dad taught engineering, mostly, and, and technology, mostly robotics. Oh,
3: God. Whoa. Totally different. Whoa. Oh
2: yeah, totally different. Um, but also, you know, a great lover of literature mm-hmm. and a great reader and all yeah. those things, too. Right. So that was sort of how I got my start. And it led me on, you know, a journey to doing a lot of other sort of professional shows as a kid mm-hmm. and ultimately to um, landing at Steppenwolf, which is a really famous theater in Chicago, in Chicago. that's owned by John Malkovich mm-hmm. and Gary Sinise um, <clears throat> and and birthed a lot of really important actors that we all know and love and did a lot of really experimental theater and when I was there... So how old are you
0: at this point? So that was the summer between eighth grade and freshman year. Okay, so you spent all these years sort of perfecting, well, not perfecting, but... Yeah, doing your craft. stuff, yeah. like being
2: in Chekhov plays. Yeah, and right. eventually it went from sort of musical stuff to much headier mm-hmm. stuff, like things that were way more sort of literary and, you know, kind of heavy and important. And I loved that. Um, you like the more dramatic... Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly sang and, like, loved music and yeah. loved all that. But, like,
1: the depth of
0: storytelling and yeah, the depth lessons of story- learned. Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: that was so important to me. And that summer at Steppenwolf workshopping mean this play called The Serpent, that same time they were putting on a adaptation of Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. Mm-hmm. And so I got to see that at the start and was just, like, so enamored and so blown away that you could... You know, tell tell stories like Mm -hmm. this. And so, while I was there during that time, Christopher Columbus, who directed a lot of early Mm -hmm. famous
0: movies, a lot of big um, ones,
2: yeah, had taken over his season of um, artistic director Mm -hmm. at that place. And he was talking to us and brought up this place called Interlochen, which is Mm -hmm. like a fine arts boarding school, and just how great of a place it is, and kind of encouraging anyone that was young to look into it for school or for camp. and that just like lit a spark mm-hmm. in me. Yeah. Where, I was, where is
1: Interlochen again? Um,
2: so it's in Northern Michigan. Northern mm-hmm. Michigan. I would do the hand, but no one can see my hand. <laughs> yeah. um, it's this way. But yeah. it's, it's really in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's this um, magical little school. It started as a camp, I think in the 20s. And then by the 40s, they created a boarding school. And It's, it's small, isn't it? It's 400 kids yeah. for boarding school. 400 right. total for all four years. And then they offer like a post-grad mm-hmm. year. And it's on a little isthmus between two lakes surrounded by state parks. Um, And it's freezing. It snows from basically October, and it melts in May. Of
1: course, you're there for most of the winter. Yeah, I didn't even think about that part. So they really keep you inside. Yeah, they really keep you there.
2: (laughs) They keep you there. There's no snow days. There's no snow Um, (laughs) days. And most of the teachers actually live elsewhere, but they give them cabins for the season. Right. Right. Like So they live in these like sort of magical little cabins oh my God. and um yeah i mean sometimes we'd have to snowshoe to class to get like sometimes the drifts were so intense that we couldn't get out of our doors like our front doors of our dorms wow
3: <laughs> um
2: you know which added this very sort of romantic sure. um kind of like deep thing to the whole experience But yeah, so ultimately, I convinced my parents
0: to let me go to this this boarding school in eighth grade. You're like, this sounds like this sounds right for me. Yeah, apply in eighth grade. Yes. What's the process like? I imagine very competitive. We
2: went there. We had I had to like audition, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, you had to show sort of like multiple monologues, your grades. Um, you know, they were concerned that I'd come from like a small public school because it's obviously really rigorous academically on top of the arts. Um, but, yeah, I got in and I got a scholarship, which is wow. amazing wow. because it's it's expensive. I mean, you don't mm-hmm. even want to know what it costs now, uh, yeah, I but. Can't <laughs> But it was just magical. I mean, we went to school from 8 until 6 p.m. We went to school on Saturdays. Like, it's no joke because wow. they don't think you should come out of there just being good at your art. Like, they want you to be
1: excellent I mean, excellent yeah. at
2: everything. But, you know, class size was 12 and you called yeah. your teacher by their first name and you could swear in class. And, you know, when you were choosing from, like, your classes, it was like, oh, okay, Russian Lit um, for your English class. Or, like, Destiny and World Literature where you're, like... Reading the book of Job and Clockwork Orange, and you know, yeah. just having this really mm-hmm. robust experience.
1: You went in obviously as an actor, but what, a, how many different um, disciplines?
2: <laughs> disciplines? Yeah, disciplines. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. So, there's classical music, is probably the largest, okay. you know, program. And then there's a jazz program.
3: Okay.
2: Um, a really incredible creative writing program um, that I always sort of secretly wished I was in because mm-hmm. okay. it was just so cool. A fine arts program. Uh, program that, you know, but certainly some people really specialized in just sculpture over, you know, painting. Um, The, you could do a theater tech, Mm -hmm. like production
0: design um, discipline, theater, ballet, I think that's, oh, and opera. Okay. Wow. And then all of just your basic educational math and English. But no
1: one goes there just strictly for the, um, for that side of it, though, I would assume. Mm -hmm. It's it's very much like arts-based with a very intense academic structure as well. Like
2: So they do allow like twenty academic majors mm-hmm. a oh, okay. year. I mean you you there's like no money. <laughs> like, okay. You have to be yeah. able to like mm-hmm. I don't want to say buy your way in, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there's just it's a different it's a different yeah. thing. Right. But um <laughs> So I didn't
1: interrupt. I was just I just I've I have not really ever asked you about interlocking yeah. before. And oh, I know, yeah. I, know you, I know you, I know a couple other people that have gone there. Who and else just went there? I know Sam Schamburg.
2: Betsy. Uh, she was Betsy a production major Chris McCann,
1: right? Chris McCann, um, yeah he was an art
2: major. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's all very amazing people you know mm-hmm. it seems like it, it generates some pretty crazy yeah people absolutely
2: oh yeah. my gosh i mean the alumni is like yo-yo ma mm-hmm. you know nora jones yitzhak perlman Sufjan yep. stevens like i yep. mean it's <laughs> just it's crazy, it's yeah. inc- it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. um but yeah and and i think the coolest or or most inspirational part of it was really just that at this very formative age like your teenage years yeah. you sort of you leave your parents and you're going to be raised by this community and half of them come from other countries mm-hmm. and you know obviously there are like violin gods from you know from China and, you know all over <laughs> these you know wild wild folks but like Demir who was the first chair uh, violinist was a good bit older like I think he might have even been 19 or 20 mm-hmm. in his last year there but the school is just keeping him there because if he went back he'd have to fight in Kosovo like he just wow. you know yeah. like yeah. people there were just these sort of brilliant people from totally different worlds mm-hmm. completely different experiences um, many that didn't speak English as a first language mm-hmm. and you were like living together you, you know, pretty amazing, and in a in in a social structure that there was no hierarchy in mm-hmm. because you sort of all were going to get along anyways, and there were cliques, you know, in that sense, like you'd find your like micro gang, within. absolutely, but there was never like a hierarchy, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that was really because everyone was excellent, everyone was pretty excellent, much. Mm-hmm. and and everyone was supportive, and there was like not really drama. Because we were all living together. it's like sort siblings.
0: of a, a we versus no compi- an I. Is there competition,
1: mm-hmm. though? I mean, do you feel like there's people totally. trying to be like, I want to be the best? Definitely. There's got to be that.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's definitely competition. Yeah. No question. Because, you know, beyond even just the competition for first chair or for the lead in the play or right. to be the prima or whatever, there's also, like, everyone's trying to get into Juilliard and they want to be a presidential scholar of the arts. And yeah. there's a million different, like, scholarships you're fighting for. Um, but... Yeah, it was really, it was just a really special place. And it completely changed the trajectory of my life. Mm
3: -hmm. You know,
2: without a doubt, I came out of there so in love with the arts, understanding artists in a way that I, you know, wouldn't have. And it also just made me like a great writer and a great communicator and a great, I don't know, just ignited a a lifelong curiosity for art Mm -hmm. and people's experience
0: and did you love it yeah. from the get-go? Did you have any homesickness? Was it like, I'm were there fears s- like that? Or did you're like, not. Bye, <laughs> <laughs> Mom and Dad. Yeah.
2: I I didn't. Yeah. It just felt like the a place where I could be sort of the purest version of myself, and you know, I think if it did anything, it made
0: every experience after that like pretty disappointing. Totally. <laughs> <I'm sure.
3: laughs>
0: I can't imagine college was much of a challenge. You know it was awful. I mean like my whole my whole college situation was a complete
2: debacle. Like after oh, interlocking I went to Oxford, mm-hmm. which was awesome. And I still very much wanted to be an actor. That's, you know, what I thought. And how so- did you end up at Oxford? Like very like how did that they were happen. just, like, encouraging people from that program, from Interlochen's program. Like, there's just really deep reaches into the other sure. sort of arts programs, you know, Juilliard and mm-hmm. Manhattan School of Music, or, you know, there's just, they all come. They don't, we don't actually even go to them. They all come to Interlochen and, and like, set up. Like, Sarah Lawrence and Bard and all these conservatories, they they come and show up. And, yeah. you know, I mean, they're, like, headhunting you.
0: For sure, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, and so when I was doing all my different auditions, like it was pretty easy to get into like the schools that I wanted. And there was this great program um, at Balliol, which is one of the 11 colleges at Oxford, um, which was sort of like the College of English. Like some of my friends had like Sylvia Plath's old room and wow. there were wow. fireplaces in your dorm room. Oh, and that's amazing. It was bonkers. Wow. Um, and. They had all these amazing artists that would come and workshop um, and direct you. So mm-hmm. I like got to work with Ben Kingsley and Derek Jacobi, and
0: I love learning this stuff about you. I had no idea what oh. these yeah. your experiences. This <laughs> I was trying to remember when,
1: how old you were when I met you and and when you came to LA.
0: Yeah, so l- love
2: brought me back to mm-hmm. the US. I could not get over my high school boyfriend. We right. could not stand to be separated. So how and, long did you last at Oxford? Like. One semester. Okay. And I had also been offered a scholarship to USC for awesome. their BFA program. Right. Okay. And we had, like, hatched this plan to land back in L.A. where his dad lived and he's like, oh, I-, he was a year younger than me. So mm-hmm. he's like, oh, I can finish at a private high school in L.A. Mm-hmm. and we'll, like, hatch this plan. Oh so gosh. we totally ruined our lives by, like, hatching <laughs> this plan and then it failed us miserably. Mm-hmm. His dad ended up needing to go, his dad was director and he ended up needing to go shoot in another state <laughs> and then he couldn't stay there, but he'd already left Interlochen and so, like, in his senior year, it was just, just a disaster great life lesson. Um, yeah. So I transferred to USC and I think I met you shortly after yeah you were, i feel
1: like that was when i met you yeah
2: because i was 18 i think when i met you, you. Were, yeah. so young i know i did right. a semester in the dorms okay. at usc yeah. and yeah so it would have been the following year yeah and um it was just culture shock i'm sure that.
0: did you like la or i hated like, what it what the fuck i'm like at usc in the weirdest part of town and certainly back then. I mean, I, like, I am old. Now and so it's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: now it's great. But yeah. back then it was, like, scary, scary and yeah. dangerous. And There all was no was staples or anything downtown. Like, nothing. No, you no. couldn't, like, find a restaurant. No. There was no. nothing. You stayed put. And also, like, everybody was, um, you know, away from home for mm-hmm. the first time. And mm-hmm. that was not my experience. I was yeah. just, like, like a you different You guys don't person. know how to do your laundry? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, the saving grace was honestly that my neighbor was our pal Austin Nichols Mm -hmm. and he was also didn't know that had a long distance girlfriend who is that foxy boy (laughs) yeah and so like he had Claire and I had my long distance boyfriend and so we just hung out because we were just like not interested in anything and like we would go to the beach and he would surf and I would hang out and read and oh my god how funny he was like my lifeline yeah but yeah so I did that and I get I guess I just sort of was like okay it's LA like I gotta get like, a manager and an agent, and I guess I'm gonna do this LA acting thing. Mm-hmm. Even though that was like never my ambition, you know, was to do it like film and TV. Mm-hmm. I always thought I'd be like a theater person. I you know? know you
1: said you followed love to LA, but was there any inkling to go to New York and try to do that sort of side of it?
2: Well, it's interesting. So I, you know, I got an agent and a manager, and I start, started auditioning, and yeah. I got cast on this horrible show called Hang Time, <laughs> which was on after Saved by the Belt. I- Totally wow. remember that. Yeah, show. about the basketball team. Yep. And oh my God. so I was just like, okay, cool. I quit USC. Like, oh, really? I just was like, oh. okay, peace. Like, yep. this, this is, is it. the dream <laughs> I got on TV. And no diss to hang time. Mm-hmm. But it was just like my lines were like. Thanks for the Spanish lesson, Antonio. Like I was just like <laughs> a cheerleader and it was just like, you know, yeah. garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so This is not it for me. And I had, like, got some good roles, and it certainly was going okay mm-hmm. you know i can't complain i had a good agent and a good manager and how did
0: that how did you come to your good agent and good, a- good manager
2: well so a friend of mine had a manager mm-hmm. that they were like you should meet with mm-hmm. and it was actually kind of like a kids acting manager because i was still really young, young yeah. you know but it was during that era of everything was high school based right that
0: kind of early like really and 90210 like that whole thing or no
2: yeah i mean even like a little bit later than that like i remember i went to producers um on uh, Freaks and Geeks, like mm-hmm. there were just lots of kind of young people shows being mm-hmm. cast and yeah. it was active. And so that manager got me my agent right. and it was, it was going, but then I did Hang Time, and I was just like, I don't think this is <laughs> it for me anymore. And I already was starting to feel that way. I already was like, it's not enough for me to just put my fate in other people's hands
3: mm-hmm.
2: and to have to sit around and wait to feel fulfilled. That just was like an impossible thing to reconcile. Mm -hmm. So I decided I would go. I was like, okay, maybe this is, I got to get out of here. So I'm going to go audition for Juilliard. Like maybe I just need to get back in the path. And I went up to San Francisco and I auditioned and I got called back, just me and one other girl. And I didn't get it.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. And I was just like, okay, that's it. Mm -hmm. And I already was having feelings like this isn't
1: enough for me even though spending most of your life thinking that this was what you wanted to do
2: yeah and i've always been sort of weirdly uh decisive in that Mm -hmm. way i'm sure much to my husband's chagrin but like (laughs) it's easy for me to just be
0: like this is what i'm doing Mm -hmm. or this isn't working and now i'm moving on did you see it more as like a or less as i didn't get in i quit and more of this is a sign I wasn't supposed to do this. I wasn't totally. supposed to get in. Let's move forward.
2: I think it was yeah. just that. I think mm-hmm. it was like the combination of the sign mm-hmm. from the universe and also just realizing after my like stint in LA doing it that that this is a big part of being a professional actor. I mean, not just the rejection because I, you know, that's okay, mm-hmm. but just that it's not something you can do on your own. And be in control of. Yeah, you have to be okay. Completely saying like, I may not feel professionally satisfied at all for a year, months, yeah. year, yeah. And that was just so depressing mm-hmm. to me. I just felt like that wasn't
0: I wasn't capable of hacking that part of it.
1: Yeah, Riley was saying it felt a lot like what was it waiting to be chosen. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Just a lot of waiting. Just and just even Adam Shapiro had said like, there are times the more the more successful he's become, the less he works. And so these these the times between actually booking jobs has gotten longer and longer and that sort of yeah. how do we fill yeah. this time and
2: and that's you know i think some people are great at that kind mm-hmm. of like self-directed you know totally. stuff mm-hmm. and i'm just not like i'm someone that always grew up having a ton of activities mm-hmm. and like being overscheduled and liking that mm-hmm. you know you
1: thrive on being busy i thrive on yeah. being busy yeah. and
2: within a structure that mm-hmm. like it it you know yeah I'm less self-directed
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. when it comes to...
1: When, when you feel like you have no time, it's kind of a good feeling. Yeah. River.
0: If you want something done, give it to a busy person. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, we're running out of ideas for these little breaks. I think they're important, though. Give your brain a moment to uh, process what you've listened to. But this week, I think we're just going to do a little musical interlude, although I'm talking over it now, so I guess it's not a musical interlude. You know, the next break, I'm going to find some different music, something you haven't heard before. Now back to Megan.
0: I have to know, did you and Austin maintain a friendship after you left? Obviously. Totally. (laughs) I mean, still our pal. Yeah, 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 for sure. No, totally.
2: (laughs) Just thinking about this. He was just like sort of starting to dabble in being interested in acting, too. He was not there for acting. Like he was a communications major Mm -hmm. and like a surfer. And he'd been like... I don't even know, like a wakeboard, like a wakeboard. He was a wakeboard
0: competitor. I think he's like gonna be a professional wakeboarder. Yeah, that was like
2: his his life. But he kind of like started to dabble in being interested Mm -hmm. in it. And one this this guy, this USC film major, (laughs) asked us to star in this spoof of the Titanic. Oh my god! (laughs) The two of you, I would die to find it.
3: Oh, we (laughs) got like we
2: went down to the Queen Mary and like did the thing.
0: Where is that? Give <laughs> anything? Oh. Bird it. Burn it. Get it. No, Someone find out. it and deliver it to our home address.
1: Oh my <laughs> god! Your next birthday, that's going to be projected yep. on the wall. That's awesome.
0: Okay, so yep. you left USC, you, USC. Yeah, so left USC. Yeah. and like
2: had already, you know, got an apartment. It was doing that thing. Right. Went through the Juilliard thing, and then was like, "Oh my god, yeah, what now?" So what now? And then I just spent like a year being. Kind of lost, which in hindsight, I'm, I'm so sad that I was so tough on myself during that time because I think, and this is something as a parent, like, you really realize, like, you are not an adult until you're, like, 25. Absolutely. Yeah. You're just not. And whatever happens in that era between, like, 18 and and 25 is really tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's tough and it's complicated and you're searching for what you want and you're not really sure how to
0: listen to your own voice mm-hmm. and and also trying to just make ends meet for the most part. Totally. How to pay your bills, all that stuff. Got to make it, mm-hmm. got to yeah. not like ask your parents for mm-hmm. too much money. Not yeah. too <laughs> much, like just <laughs> enough so they think you're doing a little bit of work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but won't
2: cut you off. Right. Yeah. Um and so it was a tricky time. And you know, I mean, I think that what I knew I wanted, for sure, was to do something in the arts. Like, Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something in the arts, but on the side where, on a side where I was in some control. And, you know, I always loved music. was like a music obsessive, of course, because I lived in a college town. There was like a great all-ages venue. I saw like Vruca Salt and Belly and all these like bands roll through when I was like 14. Yeah. you know, saw Depeche Mode and the What venue, out of curiosity. Oh, I can't even remember the name of it now. It was so garbagey. Like yes, was, they mm, most are. garbagey. <laughs> um and then all of, like the relatively big tours rolled through champaign Urbana, because mm-hmm. like U of yeah. I is a big college town. So like got to see, you know, Blind Melon and right. I mean, just everything all yeah. in that era. Yeah. Went to Lollapalooza. For sure. And, you know, just loved music and had played music but never wanted to perform it. Mm-hmm. Just like purely for my own enjoyment. And um And also loved writing. Mm-hmm. Like I really loved Writing that was one gift that Interlochen gave me, and so I thought I wanted to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to profile musicians and like be a critic, or you know, just r- more more profiles. Like I didn't mm-hmm. think I had sort of the musicology background to be a critic, but. Mm-hmm. I kind of started to ruminate on that idea of well, how could I do this? How could I maybe like write about the arts? Um, and I'm so glad in hindsight that's not the path I went down.
0: <laughs> but a great career choice. Like, what a fun, fun job.
2: I mean, it would be so, mm-hmm. it yeah. would be so fun. Mm-hmm. Um
1: just go around seeing a lot of bands and talking mm-hmm. about it. yeah, I mean, that'd be great. And yeah. that's kind of what I thought <laughs>
2: yeah. my life would be. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, our group of friends were all in bands yeah. and we were all seeing so much music. Yeah, we're out every night doing that anyways. And so I just thought. This would be cool. And maybe it's not my for everything, but like maybe this will be my for now thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously this is from a place of of privilege. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not how everybody gets in, future interns. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just had a friend whose dad was in the music business Mm -hmm. and who said – You should really go meet with my publicist. And so Will's dad just like set up a meeting with Mm. this guy, Michael Jensen. And I was only, I mean, at this point, I was only 20. Right. I wasn't even legally able to drink or go C bands without my fake ID.
1: (laughs) What up, Jocelyn
2: from Far Rockaway, Sagittarius? (laughs) Also, like 34. so i went and met with this guy and he kind of explained what he did and mm-hmm. like i kind of understood it because mm-hmm. my mom was a public relations professor i knew i knew what it was and i sort of like got that even if i didn't totally know what it was i could dial a friend for help right yep. Figure five, it 555 out. Mom, <laughs> yeah five 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 mom mama and uh <laughs> and so i walked away from that Kind of like having some info and sort of him kind of saying he put me in touch with some editors or some, you know. And then he called me like a day later and was like, will you come work for me? Wow. As a publicist. Not like an assistant or anything like that. And I was like, well, duh, of yeah. course I yeah. Know. Yeah. you know. And so I went in there, and it was total baptism by fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was complete fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and after about a month there, he realized that like, he thought I was, I don't know, 29 <laughs> and living in the valley. And I'm like, no, I'm 20. <laughs> and it was like a whole thing. Like, how are you even going to see your bands
0: play? Yeah. Like. So it was a wild first oh, oh, year.
1: Sorry, he hired you not knowing that you were 20? Yeah. That's amazing. Well,
0: you so. probably can't. You can't legally. You can't really, so yeah, how old are you? Yeah, right? That is, yeah, that's
1: pretty yeah.
2: amazing, though. I know. I felt so <laughs> bad. But you know, something similar had happened to him. Like, he right. had started at Columbia Records when he was really young, mm-hmm. too. Maybe 21 or 22.
3: Yeah.
2: A similar vibe had happened where someone was like, wait, you don't, like, have two children? And, like, <laughs> I, you know, like, it came yeah. out as well. And so he sort of loved it. Well, you
0: clearly, like, hit something with him, like, immediately for him to hire you the next day. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. 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 Yeah,
0: not knowing anything about you. <laughs> right. So
2: it was crazy because mm-hmm. at that time it was, this will really age me, but that was like Santana Supernatural. Oh. And oh. that was his client. Wow. And so yeah. it was this monster of a machine. I mean and it was just going and going and going. And going and like I mean I think ultimately that sold 50 million records.
1: It's a big record. I
2: believe it. Man. Huge record. It won more Grammys or it tied oh I guess God, with yeah. Thriller. And within months I was like flying to New York and having, you know, meetings at Arista and Jay Records and like going into the offices at Rolling Stone and wow. you know, doing late night TV tapings and it was just wild. And suddenly I had that like fulfillment and that busyness that I I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think back then it was very much like it was a very like youthful, sort of immature outlook on what was happening. It was like my power. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm in my power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It was less about the work or the fulfillment you feel or how you're helping artists or how you're 100%. crafting your stories. But back then it was about, it was about that
0: and just oh, my career. I'm making it. I'm busy. Yeah. And I
2: found, you know, I found something that I can be good at, Mm -hmm. you know, and that that will propel
0: me forward. And Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry. And it's a lovely combination of kind of all of your skills.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think I think so. I mean, I think it was way later that I, you know, it's really been in like the last decade that I think I've discovered like the depth of that. Mm -hmm. But it was a great introduction and you know most of those artists were older and that just is like you're playing when you're a legendary artist like you're doing rock and roll hall of fame inductions and all these things that young artists Mm -hmm. don't get and so in some ways my career was almost like reverse engineered where I got to sort of start way
0: up here. You had a little Benjamin Button like start at the end for the older. Yes. Older artists and then work backwards. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Totally. So that was that, and I was there. A decade, I became vice president, and I started a management division, which was a terrible idea, but I did it. <laughs> and I did it until I felt like it was time to do my own thing. Mm-hmm.
1: What did you like better, the keeping a big artist big or making a new artist break?
2: Ultimately, definitely. The new... the new. You know, taking a new artist. And, and did you even do that at that company? Very little. Were you ever breaking there new There was artists? certainly some mm-hmm. of that, but it was just... It was way less, and it was way less of a priority. I right. mean, that yeah. that firm was about legacy management. Mm-hmm. You know, that firm was oh, that's about a,
1: that's a good way. Of Sorry, that makes sense. You know, yeah. just
2: like where you're like, okay, well, don't scrap your legacy and make sure that like you stay relevant. Yeah. and maintain yeah. you. Yeah, getting all the accolades you're supposed to, and you're in all the like Songwriters Hall of Fame and you know Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and totally. how are you know how can we do all these things? I mean, Santana was a great, um, brilliant moment of like resurgence and relevance in the pop, you know space. How old, how
1: old was he when he did that?
2: Carlos was probably in his fifties, his early fifties. That's, that's incredible. he that was that
1: big at that at that age. It's mm-hmm. amazing.
2: Yeah, it's I mean, hard and to do. and that was so intentional. It was his wife at the time, Deborah. You know, really just went to Clive Davis and said, "This is the year we're going to get Carlos back on the on the radio. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do it?" And Clive Davis just sat everybody down and they figured out who they could pair him with. It's amazing. And then they made a whole record yeah. of those pairings. Unreal. And...
0: <laughs> so crazy to think. I mean, all of those songs. Just immediately flood oh, no. my mind. It was you couldn't escape it. No, yeah. <laughs> it was everywhere. It was everywhere.
1: You said you became vice president. You did a management company, and then
0: you started your own company yeah. after about
1: a decade. Decades, I you said?
0: Yeah. What was the moment of um, parting from Jensen? I mean, How it was, was a that? few things. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: I th- I think that I found it sort of limiting. Mm-hmm. You know, after a while, it became really hard to work within that structure and kind of ultimately make this move to much younger artists. Mm-hmm. So it's why I started the management division initially was just because I was like, I, I need to be having conversations about with my contemporaries and not mm-hmm. just working with managers that are like aging out, Right. Like, you know? Yeah. I need, or I will age out or I will be here forever. Um. And so during that time, uh, it cracked open the whole wide world of the music business that people my age were involved in. And, you know, I made all these friends mm-hmm. and all these, you know, sort of, spheres of the music business and I I just was ready for that but also personally I was just really ready to start a family Mm -hmm. eventually Mm. and knew that you know my sort of old school music business boss who'd never been married um, and really just believed in like you got to keep the office hours and you're kind of a slave to your job that's Mm -hmm. the number one priority that I was just never going to be able to do that like I was never going to have any flexibility there and it's funny now saying that because uh-huh. I think even with COVID and like the way we all work is so different now mm-hmm. and I don't even think like my friends that are still at that company are able to have flex oops sorry are able to have flexibility now and work from right. home sometimes but that just wasn't an option mm-hmm. and so I started thinking about sort of the different places I could go. You know, I was talking to some managers about going in-house to be a publicist, which some management companies have Mm -hmm. in-house PR and radio. You know, do I go to a label? Like, what do I do? And at the time, I knew that an acquaintance of mine, this woman, Kate Jackson, who was running Sub Pop's PR and marketing, Mm -hmm. was also looking to leave Sub Pop. And we had met when we were like 21 years old, 22 years old, on this Vote for Change tour. She was working Mm -hmm. for Pearl Jam at the time. And I had... CSN and Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt on that tour. And we went to New York for this, like, big Rolling Stone cover shoot because we were trying to – we were going into the swing states and we were trying to convince them not to vote for – not to reelect Ooh. George Bush. Right. And, um, you know, we had a couple, like, sneaky ciggies on uh, a <laughs> balcony here and there. Both kind of realized we were just way too young to be in this room. Like, it was <laughs> yeah. absurd. Totally.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, with all these huge managers. Right. And You know, it was like Bruce Springsteen talking to the Dixie Chicks about their experience when they went political. <laughs> and we're just – are like, hey, um, and so we kind of always knew of each other and mm-hmm. would see each other at South by Southwest. And um, she had started to date someone that I that she eventually married and mm-hmm. wanted to leave Sub Pop and needed to move to LA. And we were just like, let's do it. So cool, you know. And whenever you leap with someone that you're not that close with, it's always like this. Very scary, mm-hmm. sort of fit. Like, is this going to work out? Are
0: you for sure in? Like, um, but maybe better than being deep, deep dear friends and yeah. starting a business together, which yes. can be a nightmare, totally. Yeah.
2: yeah, and so we just sort of started to kind of let our clients know that that's yeah. what we were doing, and we were really lucky that uh, most of them came with us. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she was looking after the Fleet Foxes and the Head and the Heart, and a bunch of mm-hmm. artists at Sub Pop that said, We will pay you to work independently, and like Jackson Brown, came, you know, all these people right. came with me. and. Um, and so we set up our little shop. We didn't, you know, I never took a day off. Like I just went from my last day at Jensen to my first day at Grandstand. Mm -hmm. And we worked out of her guest house (laughs) right around the corner from you. And, um, and we started our business.
0: So at this time, this is about a decade ago. Yep. It's about 10 years. ago. And so what I'm trying to like back up in my brain in 2011, what's going on in music? Where are we with how music is discovered? Where are we?
1: Yeah, streaming hits. Yeah. Streaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah this streaming is, is where my
0: brain is I'm like. So about, yeah, what? So yeah, you're going from Jensen to you're starting your own company. How is that transition? I mean, it's totally different. Like it wasn't Spotify sure. era, but it was like iTunes era. Okay, you know,
1: right? We're still buying music though at that point, right? You're
0: I know. still. I mean, yeah, I think you're buying it on iTunes. You're buying yeah. it, but like the iPhone came out 2007. Yeah, we only know that because we mm-hmm. had the first like, iPhones on our on our <laughs> on, on our. On our honeymoon um, and everyone was like oh my god you have that <laughs>
1: um yeah but that, that's a really strange climate for uh-huh. music at that period of time like if i remember correctly it was weird yeah
2: i mean i think it was like right around like there was the big rise of americana right yeah. you know that fleet foxes was certainly a part of and avet brothers and right like that was a whole mm-hmm. that resurgence was just kind of rolling out like towards the end of its big kind of thing mm-hmm.
1: kings of leon when's that
2: yeah that was like around a little bit before that but okay. that was like right around that era of their big record. It's so funny. I remember sitting in my friend Brian Beck's car because he worked for their label and he mm-hmm. played me that record in particular. Like sex, the, not, sex is on
1: yeah, Fire. Whatever, yeah, record, yeah, yeah. And I just
2: was like, oh my God, this is going to be so it's gonna huge. Be huge. Yeah. yeah. Huge. Um, so it was, you know, it was kind of that, t- you know, it was the time of the band. Mm-hmm. It yeah. really was. It was like the time of indie rock. Mm-hmm. I feel like having its mainstream moment and not being like club acts but mm-hmm. like you know playing huge arenas and um yeah. yeah it was like the time the band it was the time of sort of indie rock becoming mainstream mm-hmm. you know things like saint vincent were happening and grimes and yeah there were just a lot of bands that were breaking through mm-hmm. that were you know that were interesting just left of center just different yeah yeah totally yeah um so that was the era and you know obviously that's what kate certainly did at Sub Pop. you know she built her career on that you know, the difference is, is, like, she had all that experience and no experience managing a PR firm, mm-hmm. you know? And then I had this PR firm and sort of some of, the, like, the upper-level experience, and it ended up being this great marriage mm-hmm. to where we just, it was like both of our skill sets combined to offer something unique. Right. Yeah, we, like, kind of hashed it out in the first year and started to have an eye on accruing people and growing mm-hmm. and... We ended up merging with this New York firm, and they were looking after, you know, the XX and Florence and the Machine mm-hmm. sure. and churches and all these other great artists, mm-hmm. too, like our rosters were really going to meet. And so, and it was two females, mm-hmm. and we were like, great, New York office, boom, merge our rosters, now it's sizable. Now it's like, it's not just like a handful of mm-hmm. good bands, it's like a lot of By good Postal, bands. coastal, a lot yeah. of good bands. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were like, okay, let's start to make some plays for some big stuff. And so we decided to go after The National. They were up at that time coming off of High Violet. They knew they wanted to change and, you know, were able to get them and was like something that all four of us could work on, mm-hmm. you know, where we could be like, okay, this is a band that's about to crest. How do we take it from, you know, the big theaters, like maybe the Greek, mm-hmm. um, and how do we get it to the, the bowl. bowl? The bowl Like, yeah. how do we get it to... You know, an arena mm-hmm. and what does that look like? How do we get SNL?
1: What How does can- that look like? Yeah. <laughs> How did you do it?
2: You know, I mean it's a lot of hard work for sure. Yeah. But um, you have to pay for that.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: I think the thing about that band and it became an incredible imprint for me for Tame and Paula too. But mm-hmm. you know, be this is a band that had a great story to begin with. It wasn't this, like, robust narrative, but it was enough. It was two sets of brothers Mm -hmm. and a lead singer. Mm -hmm. And, like, what's that dynamic? Like, these two twin geniuses, you know, on their guitars, and then these two other brothers in the rhythm section, you know, playing bass and and drums and, like, this incredibly brilliant lyrical content. And, you know, they all grew up in Cincinnati together, and they were, like, they came up together, and they all had other careers, Mm -hmm. and then they built this band, and they had this, like, later-in-life success And these are all really great stories, Mm -hmm. you know? These are all fascinating things. And I think the other thing, you know, with them is we took almost the blueprint of their career and for that record, we, for Sleep Well Beast, we were like, okay, you know, they've always played the long game. We're going to play the long game on this record. You know, we're going to do a handful of covers. We're going to find the really great writers to write until, like, the long form. And we're just going to build it and build it and build it. And by the time we got Saturday Night Live, that record had been out for a year. Oh, really? You know, we just sort of played the, like, we will continue to plot great press and great looks and great TV the whole way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And eventually we're gonna get to where we wanna where we wanna go. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. It also helps when you have a hardworking band. band. You know? Yeah. I mean, there are many there are many bands that get to the place where they're capable of that
3: mm-hmm.
2: and they don't double down. Mm-hmm. They say, I'm tired, I'm burnt out. Yeah. And you get it, right? It is exhausting to answer the same question a million times and you know to do all the promo but it's the ones that decide like are in tune enough in the moment to know like that this is actually when you double down
3: Yeah,
2: it's those that make it mm-hmm. you know musical
1: break number two this is some new music for you Did you deserve it I really did have to change mics though you probably heard a little bit of noise and grumbling Sorry about that. Very professional over here, as you can tell. And back to Megan. During our mic change, you were saying that you've never been interviewed about this stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's like a thing that happens as a publicist is you just have no interest in like you are the farthest thing from the equation. Sure. So you just get really used to being like, I'm not interested in any kind of self-promotion or But it
0: seems like you as the publicist are the closest in fact, to how everything is broken. Like, you're you're the person most responsible for breaking bands and telling the story and sort of the, I don't know. I mean, maybe. You yeah. know, Michael
2: Jensen, my first boss, always had this saying that has stuck with me, which is, first to be blamed, last to be thanked. Mm. Yeah. And it's kind of like the classic publicity credo because it's never enough, or it's too Mm -hmm. much, or like, you know, there's just a lot that's out of your control, too. Like, I can't control reviews. Right. You know, that is just between the material and the reviewer. Like, Mm -hmm. I can control that they hear it and that they're considering it for review, but I can't control how they write about it. Right. In that context. I mean, I certainly can control how features are written about, and that's a big part of it, Mm -hmm. is figuring out what the pitch is, Mm -hmm. and, you know how we tell that story and that and that is an incredibly thrilling part of the job you know like when you see the story you pitch told so beautifully Mm -hmm. in a big feature you know that's a great part but yeah do
1: you have mostly you have mostly in uh i use the terms lightly but indie versus pop uh you mostly indie and rock sort of formats right do you have any pop artists
2: I mean, I guess it just depends on your definition of pop. I'm sure some have crossed
1: over, but... Certainly, like, you know,
2: Mark Ronson was on our roster for a long time, and I think you can call him a Mm -hmm. pop-ish artist, but, um, you know, we have, like, I like to say that we have a little bit of everything, Mm -hmm. because we certainly do, like, A$AP Ferg, and, you know, um, and there's people like David Byrne that we look after that, like, is on Broadway right Mm -hmm. now, you know, it's, and we have punk artists, and we have rappers, and, like, we have metal like we have everything i think if you really are thinking about like the core of our business it's it probably indie rock bands um the reason i was
1: asking is because i I feel like um there's such a a reliance on radio for pop yeah i I, do you guys feel the same way just in terms of your storytelling you know what i mean like do you need the radio for your storytelling or
2: yeah I mean, I think that everybody has a different business, you know. Yeah. Like I, I look after Cage the Elephant, and they're mm-hmm. like a very huge. I think they've actually had more alternative number ones than any other band really? in the last ten years, and it's a huge part of their success. Yeah. And in some ways, I feel like it kind of overshadows their story, which is an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another band of brothers, um, but I, you know, Simple. I think it's sometimes like the radio thing can be slightly. Harmful to it's funny
1: you said yeah the job
2: that I have to do totally mm-hmm.
1: that's what uh, I was talking to Taylor and Griffin about that and uh, from Dawes mm-hmm. and I think Neil Young's manager said to Taylor the number one his number one piece of advice was don't have a hit mm-hmm. yeah he's like it it changes everything mm-hmm. about what you're trying to do and yeah it's, it, so it's it's almost like you either have to have one hit or you have to have a lot of hits mm-hmm. and, yes um, especially in the indie the sort of rock mm-hmm. band world because that yeah it's really tough to get out of it
2: yeah. well. Funny. Think about like Gautier or, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, like, oh. it's just, then you're defined by that
1: yeah.
2: one thing. And I don't know anything about his story. I mean, he's right. like, maybe from New Zealand? I don't know. You yeah. know, like, I don't yeah. know anything about him. And I think, you know, that that happens a lot where like, you know, someone at CAA will come and they'll say, oh, you know, I've got this band, Milky Chance or whatever. Yeah. And have got this big radio hit, you know, will you take over on their PR? And it's like, damn, man, it's like almost too late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to... It's very hard to reverse engineer that. Yeah. Right? Like once there's some kind of success, well then that critical base, like the pitchforks and stereo mm-hmm. gums and all the things that you need to buy in first don't want yeah. you. Yeah. They, they want to be interest. part of the the big break. Yeah.
1: They, they want to be the ones that say, hey, I found this, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And
2: you know, on the flip side, when there are these bands that have already gotten well established and will say to you, like, Well, I just want pitchfork, you know, and you're like, Well, don't. Don't worry about that, right? Yeah. You're way more successful. Right. You don't need it, yeah. right. you know. Like when you're a small band starting out, you need it. Mm-hmm. It's important to you um, to make it. But like, there's many, there's many routes to success mm-hmm. for sure. But you know what we do have a lot of is like streaming is a, is a total different thing, and much, and it actually it's like the same mechanism. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of these young artists that are have huge streaming numbers. Like you can't even wrap it's your head crazy. around yeah. it. Where you're like. How did this happen? I've never heard of this band, and they've got like a hundred million monthly listeners. Like and they who made fifty are they? cents. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a tragic part of it. Yeah. But um, you know, when they have these extremely young audiences, um, artists like that we look after, like this band Camp or MXM Tune, or we do Girl in Red. Like there's these artists where you're just like, oh my god, like look at their numbers. Mm-hmm. And And that there's like this great sense of urgency in those moments to build a story, because if you can't, it's sort of similar to radio Mm -hmm. where it's kind of like, oh, like, I don't care. I mean, I'm familiar with their music and I don't care enough now to tell that story. Um, And that's that's the one piece about audience building that is just so crucial because streaming And hearing music in that way, it's so ephemeral. Mm -hmm. Like your things are popping up and sometimes you're not even listening or you are and it's kind of gone. But if you don't feel a connection to that artist or their story, you know, there's no longevity in it. So I feel like that's a big part of my job is that piece, like that tricky little piece of how do we not just have people listen to music? Like how do we have them care
0: mm-hmm. about who this artist yeah, is. That's an I, I love that that you bring that up because I think as as I age, I, the thing that is happening to me that I was hoping would never happen to me, which is I don't care anymore to find new music. Yeah, I, I don't care enough because I, I mean I do don't get me wrong, but I am admitting that like I'm aging out of sort of the hunger to find new music yeah. and I hate that. I saw it happen to my parents and their friends and Um, how do I avoid that? Like, besides Spotify Discover Weekly, like, how do I find new music? I mean, I think there's a lot of ways. I think, first of all, I think Shazam is just an incredible tool. It's amazing. What a
1: technology, too. Like, I I don't even know how that works. I don't don't either.
2: If you don't have Shazam, I have no idea how it's done, but I just feel like that's a great way to discover something. Yeah. Also, I just think that like beyond the Spotify playlists, Mm -hmm. there are great editorial playlists. Mm -hmm. Like the weekly New York Times playlist is going to give you this amazing snapshot of what's new. And sure, they're going to have like an Olivia Rodrigo on there or whatever, but Mm -hmm. they're also going to have like an like Sons of Kemet or like Mm -hmm. an amazing jazz artist Mm -hmm. or Mackay McRaven, like someone who's just doing mind blowing. Jazz stuff, or you know, an indie artist, and
1: yeah,
2: um, and GQ does a great playlist, and right. you know, like, there are those kind of outlets that mm-hmm. do it. Um,
1: actually, I would love if you could give us, you know, maybe your top five for favorite some playlists show, notes. For our show yeah. notes, that'd be great. Oh, yeah,
2: that'd yeah, be really it'd be cool. great. Yeah, I, I mean, like, and all songs and, on NPR, oh, you right. know, so
0: good. Yeah,
1: how much time do you spend, um, a, you know, probably on a daily basis listening to stuff that you don't? represent you know what I mean you're trying to you mm-hmm. know are you paying attention to I'm sure you have to pay attention to what's happening around you right
2: yeah I mean less and less yeah mm-hmm. if I'm being honest mm-hmm. because I have to encounter
1: so much, so music,
2: much music every day yeah. when you have to work on your current roster and yeah, yeah and like our, our company is sizable enough now that mm-hmm. we have like 75 to 90 artists right you know that we're actively working right
1: do you feel responsible to know all of their music in and out
2: I don't I don't I don't feel responsible to know all of their music in and out if they're not, if it's not my direct client, you know, like the other, like, you know, publicists sort of under Kate and all of us, like, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, But we do our own Spotify playlist bi-weekly um, and like an, a year end and all of that so like that is my opportunity to kind of like listen on a monthly basis to what everybody is doing like mm-hmm. even if it's just a snapshot mm-hmm. but for my artist absolutely like you, yeah. have, to you have to know their know catalog right. through and through right. it's so important to understand yeah. who they are and also like there are many of my bands that I am just
0: like the number one fan of you totally you've got some good ones
1: totally you well, and, like and really you're just a band. music
0: fan and you have such a wealth of knowledge about music
1: yeah but I mean, yeah, Tame, I, Tame and Paula alone, I think is—I don't know anyone that doesn't like them. <laughs> I know, I mean? like it's a pretty incredible band. Yeah,
0: it's you know,
2: Kevin's incredible, and I have to say, like every time that I am standing at the soundboard watching that band, I am like screaming mm-hmm. like an eighth-grade yeah. girl, <laughs> just like I, yeah. everybody else. And I've seen them like fifty, and times, that's what we you know? want
0: in our music. Yeah. yeah, is to feel like that. It's the first show every single time you see them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I don't—it doesn't get old. Yeah, you know?
2: and it's those moments that. Um, make me feel really lucky. Yeah. Yeah, that's,
1: yeah.
0: How are you guys managing TikTok and all the new different applications for influencers and yes. talent? Do you How have a TikTok account? I don't have a TikTok account. <laughs> yeah. Ditto. Um, but I mean, man, TikTok makes me laugh it's so much. I, I think it's... Um, is that like in your wheelhouse? Is that something you guys are... TikTok less so, but mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, Instagram
2: for us and even Facebook to a certain degree... You know, Twitter, of course. Like, all these things are important because that is media now. Mm -hmm. Like, Vogue's biggest property is their Instagram. It's Mm -hmm. not their magazine. Isn't that crazy? So we have to negotiate that kind of um, coverage as part of what we're doing. You know, like, are we getting a grid post? Are we, Mm -hmm. you know, is it in stories? What's it, I mean, are we doing a takeover? Like, what Mm -hmm. are we, you know, how are we activating all that. Um, you know, I find that artists are like less interested in mm-hmm. TikTok, but that being said, it's massive. Tame Impala is a great example, but mm-hmm. what TikTok did for the less I know, the better.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, it just, like the streams because, specifically because of TikTok, those numbers have been insane. So, you know, and yet,
1: that that has to happen entirely organically too, right? Like, right. there's no one, no publicist pushing.
2: I mean, I think that there are some genre-specific things. Like, we do we dabble a little bit in K-pop because we have to, but right. like, there's definitely some some direct like K-pop TikTok content, sure. like dance move things that totally. you can sort of orchestrate, and the fans will take and run with. Yeah, it.
1: but for your type of bands, though, oh, yeah, I, you know, it, it totally. would just come off as so obvious if anyone tried to force it. I think, so. <laughs> totally, yeah,
2: totally. And authenticity matters so much so in much. my. Like right. at least for my artists, yeah. right? They, it's just like you can't force that. But TikTok is like the one thing that I find the most resistance from artists to get involved right. in. Is that an age thing? Do you think? I don't know because even some of the really young ones, mm-hmm. like I think they love TikTok for what it is. But when it like is pushing out, you know, hopefully they're
0: smart enough to realize that it's probably fleeting. I think maybe yeah. not. I mean, there's all kinds of other
2: things that they're mm-hmm. really into, like Twitch and Twitch, Discord, yeah. and like there's all sorts of other new technology. Right. and Like, most of them, because they're really young,
0: they're, they're really young, on they're, like, gamers, and they, totally. like, you know,
2: there's a lot of other totally. things there.
0: Yeah. I hate talking about COVID, but I am curious, because music business got hit so hard, like, how has that affected your business the last year?
2: Yeah, I mean, we were really fortunate in that, in some ways, it made my my business more bulletproof, because yeah. the only thing people could do is press. hmm You know, like, that. that was it. They were sitting home, and they had a record that was already scheduled to be released and they were going to release it. And so we had to go for it. And they can't be out on the road to promote it. And, I mean, I loved it because Mm -hmm. I felt like what I ended up getting was much deeper looks at some of these Mm -hmm. records, you know? And, And there are some just... This is really insider stuff, but you know, there's some there's some exclusivity stuff like between the New York Times and the New Yorker, New York Mag, or you know, where you can't really do all of them at once. Mm -hmm. And I found that even those walls came down because if there was an artist that was really fascinated and had a great story and you said, sorry, we've already got this New Yorker long form or whatever, yeah. you know, that they would say, that's fine. Who cares? Like, yeah, because people are just, reading oh, that's cool. it. cool. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. there's not that many records coming out. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the important ones, we all want to write about it.
0: That's great.
2: And we all want to tell these interesting stories. So that I loved. I also have loved that late night has become this thing that the band is completely in control of. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and totally. most of the late night bookers would tell you that they love it too cuz they it's just cool to yeah. see what people come up with. I mean, I'm sure they've gotten some clunkers, but you know, yeah. Yeah. for the most part, <laughs> these are really highly visual auteur type of people anyways, and so they're building like it allows them to go further in their world mm-hmm. building, yep. can make their own little
0: mini movies. Yeah. 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 So that's been really cool. Yeah. And yeah.
1: The, I'm sure on the bad side, though, bands not being able to tour, a lot of your bands, I would assume, have a huge following, and they rely on touring to promote themselves.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So
1: I'm sure that took its toll on some of your bands, though. Had to
2: get creative, I'm sure. I, mean, I, I think it's been really hard on sort of that like middle class, yeah, is the yeah. best way to put it, yeah. of well, artists that are... Bands are
1: already established, it's fine, uh, I would think.
2: Yeah. I mean, it would have I mean,
1: been tough, but, but the ones that are up and coming, that are just trying to break...
2: Well, really I think that's the been the toughest part, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you don't have some kind of massive streaming career and you're brand new, yeah. there's there's been, like, nothing yeah. for you. That's been impossible to break through. Yeah. I think sort of the... You know, the middle class kind of has been able, able to stay busy and release things and do live streams here and there. Mm-hmm. But it's probably really affected their bottom line. Yeah. And um, yeah, and to your point, the big bands have just kind of been able to like sit at that home is. and it's not ideal, but they, yeah. you know. Yeah. But like the live streams have been cool and some of my artists have done some really brilliant mm-hmm. ones. And I think what will happen is that we'll end up with like a giant slew of records mm-hmm. yeah and we're already seeing it yeah like surprise
0: surprise yeah. another and record 2022 is going to be
1: historic for touring <laughs> I love Taylor Swift she's
0: crazy. like um and I also did another record and here it is yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: it's impressive yeah it's it is impressive, impressive. It, yeah so certain people can really took advantage of it yeah know, yeah, something to do in the face of darkness mm-hmm. you
2: know? but, but in addition to, like, it affecting their bottom line, like, there's a huge amount of the structure of promoting an artist is based around touring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, what are the major daily newspaper features mm-hmm. that we're doing in that city? And even more than that, like, you go to D.C. and you need to do a tiny desk or an NPR thing. And, like, you go to Chicago and you need to do this. And, like, you know, there's yeah. there's a lot of press. And then also just press that comes out and covers the show. And then mm-hmm. there's a live review. It's just this way to constantly reinforce the record or the brand. And that's... That's gone. And also like I do a lot of festivals. I am the publicist for like that's new Festival festivals. I was festival just outside about to ask answer. about. Yeah. 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 I mean the good news is is that all those festivals are coming back. Mm-hmm. And, and every- s-
1: selling really well, and I heard too. Selling out. Yeah. Oh really?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Everybody yeah. wants to go. And every- I think because yeah. most of them are outside, yeah. you yeah, know. It's I a I
1: good think- starting place for everybody, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, I can do that.
2: I- I think- so you just got real busy. I <laughs> mean <laughs> yes, it's been nuts. <laughs> yeah. Being at the Echo, like I don't know when that's going to happen again
1: for
0: people, right? right. <laughs> for while, but yeah. an outdoor concert at the mm-hmm. Bowl, you know, seeing the Bowl come back. Uh, what a what a gift that yeah, would be to see a show there soon. Yeah. yeah.
1: I had one other question for you before we, we do our wrap-up queue, but like how many, so how many people are working at your company now?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Did- I think we're like 18 now. We have people in, yeah, New yeah. York and
0: and LA and... I don't think I want it to be any bigger. Mm -hmm. You're good with this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Does this feel like a sustainable business that you're in for the long haul? I think so. Yeah.
2: Owning your own thing and being a mom. Mm -hmm.
0: It's like, it just
2: offers you a lot of flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it's any less work. It's 10 times the amount. But you are capable. You know, it's it's yours. Like, Mm -hmm. you can schedule it and you can figure it out. And yeah. I I mean, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And I think that I've gotten to a place where I feel really good at it Mm -hmm. and that's awesome Mm -hmm. and it's awesome to be able to say no to the things that i don't want to work on even though i'm bad at saying no (laughs) and um yes to the things that i want to Mm -hmm. you know and to get to the place where you can have those things come your way Mm -hmm. um and that feels great and i just it's just a really nice life you know yeah so i don't think that
0: there's yeah i don't think that i don't think that i'm eyeing any moves right and we'll see how how do you continue growing in a business that you know so well it's a great question
2: i mean i think that first of all what's delightful about it is that it is Mm project-based so there's not like you of course you have clients that are ongoing but like you you're not going to ever stagnate Mm -hmm. and the, the second that you feel like you're starting to stagnate you can take on something really challenging you know i took on in late 2019 this um septuagenarian trans composer named wow. Beverly Glenn Copeland who had written a couple records way back the 70s and 80s and had been rediscovered by this Japanese record collector and sort of got like a little bit of that like crate diggers kind of like mm. excitement and love but the music is almost new age maybe the very first iterations of like what Detroit Electronic ended up sounding like and his story was incredible. Mm-hmm. Who would take this on? Like, only a nut, you know? <laughs> but it just spoke to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this week, the New York Times podcast did a whole piece about his resurgence. And, you know, the New York Times, the New Yorker, you know, Vogue, the Washington Post, later. Here, Glenn has had this complete resurgence and second life in his 70s you know and robin wrote the liner notes to the reissue and, wow you know and so this is it's things like this where you're like so this is no one should i mean no one should even find this and right. but when you get to that place where you're like oh everything feels so like by the books you can take on something like that as like That's, a one
0: for you that feels really cool and like i don't know There's purpose in there. You just gave this human being new life.
2: Well, and his music is so healing and, like, just what people needed in that time. And, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the beautiful part about Mm -hmm. this job is it is not, like, you know, nothing against a paper mill. But Mm -hmm. you are not clocking in at the mill. Like, an album cycle is six months to a year, you know, and then when you need something fresh... And you need to try to learn something new and or pick, take on a new genre, like you can do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's what makes it interesting. Keeps it fresh. That's, that's, what that's keeps so it cool. Fresh.
0: Yeah. Yes. Um, though, but our last question we always like to ask how do you define success?
2: Success
0: to me, I'd love to say that it's balanced, but I really don't think that it
2: is, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that we can all get really imbalanced in our pursuits, and that's mm-hmm. not always the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think success to me has always been about intellectual fulfillment and mm-hmm. that's just for me, you know, I'm not saying that's what everybody needs, mm-hmm. you know, an athlete is going to tell you that it's like physical mm-hmm. fulfillment or achievement. But to me, it's always been like, am I fed intellectually? Am I working on something that is inspiring mm-hmm. and m- keeps me curious, mm-hmm. you know, keeps me wanting to know more. Yeah. That's. That's it for
0: me. And there's no end to that, isn't that so fabulous? Yeah, like, yes. there is no end. You yeah. never arrive. I love it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <All> <laughs> thank right. you
0: so much. Oh, thank you so much for being Sorry here. Sorry about my
1: mic problems. No, it's very unprofessional.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the story. Well, thank you. thanks. Thanks for Appreciate being it. here. All All guys. Guys. All right.
1: <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, tell people about us. Email us at workshoppingpod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for Megan's playlists that we talked about. And that's it. We'll see you next week.